those who don't. <laughs> and I'm very glad that I'm here, especially tonight, with your Supreme Court throwing out or whatever it was they did. <laughs> it just seems that the States is in a mess. And that's putting it mildly. But it's not only the States that's in a mess. It is, in fact, the whole world. And we're in a time of the judgments of God. So I want to just read a few scriptures to you. First of all, in, uh, in the Old Testament, if you could find Joel, and I'm going to read very well-known passage that you all, oh, I'm sure, well acquainted with. Joel and chapter 2, and verse 28. This prophecy was given at least some 600 years before it began to be fulfilled. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord cometh. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord, shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those that escape, as the Lord has said, and among the remnant, those whom the Lord doth call. Then I want to turn you to the New Testament. We have sung this this evening. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. Matthew's Gospel and chapter 6. And I'm just going to read from verse 7. Very well known. I'm only going to read part of it. It is the pattern prayer that our Lord gave to us. And in praying, use not vain repetitions as the Gentiles do. For they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Be not therefore like unto them. For your father knoweth what things ye have need of before ye ask him. After this manner therefore pray ye. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done as in heaven, so on earth. Shall we just have a word of prayer? 
Beloved Lord, we're so thankful that we're here in your presence this evening. And we know very well, Lord, that we're living in very troubled times. Times of judgment, times of darkness, times when in many ways we are watching all that was so incredibly given to us by you dismantled. So that the nations we live in are being paganized before our eyes. And Lord, we who are yours seem to be asleep. We need you to speak to us. We need to hear your voice behind and beyond the human voice. And to that end, Lord, you have given us an anointing. You won it for us at Calvary, and you have made it a living reality in the person of the Holy Spirit. Into that anointing, both for the speaking of your word and for the hearing of it, we stand by faith. Fill this time with your anointing. Touch our hearts, Lord, that we may not wait for others to begin to seek you, but we ourselves will see it as a challenge to ourselves. Hear us, O Lord, for we are all held responsible by you. Let this evening be a turning point in some way for your purposes. We ask it in the name of our Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I don't have to tell you that we're living in days of judgment. I would have thought that if you are walking with the Lord, you know that. We have passed into a period of enormous trouble for the world. It's not just economic. It is not just financial. It is even to do with the climate. Some people say that the climate change is all due to the folly of men. And it may well be that the Lord is using the folly of men. But the fact of the matter is whether it is a new ice age or a new heat age... The fact of the matter is God is touching the climate. And it is the beginning of a build-up to when he touches the sun and the moon and the stars. We have begun the build-up. It is more than that. The whole world is being prepared for a superman. There does not seem to be, either in the States or in the European Union, in the United Kingdom, for instance, I don't know anywhere of someone who seems to have an answer to the economic problems 
and financial problems <clears throat> that we are all facing. We are making mistake after mistake after mistake. Nations are printing money without the value behind the paper. The result can only mean disaster. It is not just in the United States. It is everywhere. We see what is happening in Europe. We see the Greek, which I'm very well acquainted with, the Greek tragedy. In the three weeks I was in Greece, in my home in Greece, I have, of course, one in Jerusalem, as well as one in, in Naxos in Greece, and one in Britain as well, um, in the home in Greece, in that three weeks I was there in that island, 50 people committed suicide. Soup kitchens in Athens. Never seen soup kitchens before. People not derelicts, middle class people, some upper class, going to the soup kitchen. It is a time of upheaval, of turmoil, and I want to be very clear about this. It is God who is behind it. It is the judgments of God. Now, of course, you all know this wonderful prophecy of Joel. You know that it was this prophecy that Peter said on that amazing day, you call Pentecost, we call Shavuot. When that day was being fulfilled, Peter stood up after the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon 120 human beings and said, this is that which the prophet Joel prophesied, and he quoted this scripture. It was the first time ever in the history of the universe that God had united, saved human beings to their Savior at the right hand of the Father. It had never happened before. The Lord, of course, had touched Abraham in a most amazing way, so amazing that he is called the father of all who believe. As my dear friend Malcolm Hedding has put it in an inspired moment, God put into Abraham the whole DNA of world redemption. But the Holy Spirit did not dwell in him, visited him, used him, empowered him, but did not dwell in him. So it was with Moses, who spoke to God face to face. So it was with Jacob, who said, I have seen the face of God and I have lived. 
wherever you turn. If you think of Isaiah, who demoralized and troubled because of the death of King Isaiah under the judgment of God's hand, said when the Lord visited him, I am an unclean man with unclean lips. This man, who was to speak the most incredible things by the Spirit of God, nowhere in any prophet do you see anything quite like Isaiah's prophecies. They soar like an eagle into the heavens. And bring us into the presence of God. But on that day of Pentecost, 50 days after the crucifixion and burial of our Lord Jesus, his resurrection and his ascension, 50 days linking it to those tremendous events, the risen, glorified Messiah took the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, and poured him out upon 120 people, not just to use them, not just to gift them, but to dwell in them. Then something happened that was incredible. It had never happened before. 120 human beings were joined to their head at the right hand of the Father. A phrase was used which is nowhere used in the Old Testament. Head and body. It was a description of what we call the church. Would to God it was a description of what we call the church today. But it was a description of what the New Testament calls the church. Head and body. Now, if you sever a head from the body, you have neither a living head nor a living body. The whole idea of a head and body is that it is an organ organic whole. It is a living, growing, developing organism. That's the true church. That's what the Holy Spirit did. People make a great hullabaloo over gifts. I believe in gifts. And I don't know, and noise, I don't know what else about the Holy Spirit. But the thing that the Holy Spirit did was to produce this head and body, to, bre- to produce this union between head and body. Within an hour or two, 120 saved human beings became 3,120. Without all the evangelical paraphernalia we think is necessary to get a person saved. 
We seem to think we have to have theological seminaries, Bible schools. I'm not running them down that they're necessary, especially theology, if apart from anything else, when it's real theology. But, I mean, we seem to think all that is necessary. We think we have to have fundraising schemes. We have to have all other kinds of things as well before a person can get saved. But when the Holy Spirit comes, it all happens without any fuss. Within weeks, the 3,120 became 5,000. And within a few more weeks, thousands more, a great company of Levites and priests believed. This incredible prophecy of Joel is not just the description of what happened at Pentecost. It describes the whole age in which we are living. For we are told there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, blood and fire and pillars of smoke on the earth. Before that great and fearful day of the Lord come. In other words, this prophecy describes the whole of this period in which you and I are found today. We've not yet seen, although, although it, the, there have been the beginnings of them, signs in sun and moon and stars. Something happened in 1948-49 on the Jewish festival of Passover and, and uh, uh, Sukkot with the blood-red moon and an eclipse of the sun total on the first day of Nisan. In 1967-68, the same features happened again. Now they are going to happen again in 2014 and 2015. I think it's time for you and me to wake up. The trouble is, it doesn't matter who we are, I include myself in this, we get middle-aged. Of course, I'm beyond that now, in my age, but we get middle-aged, and in middle age, where we get a routine. We're very comfortable with the routine. We don't want anything that would upset the routine. We just want to have a comfortable Christianity where we go to church, not necessarily the prayer meeting, but we go to a Bible study at least once a week. We go to church on Sunday. And if we're really holy, we go to the prayer meeting. And if we really are 100% for the Lord, we try to witness to others to bring them to the Lord. But our Christianity is a tepid, middle-aged, spread Christianity. No fire. Oh, no. Mustn't have fire. That's too disturbing. We want something that just keeps us going. And 
satisfies our blame. This is why the Lord sends judgment. Did he not say it through the writer of the Hebrew letter? Did he not say a shaking would come? And did he not say those terrible words, I will not only shake the earth, but the heavens also? And did he not go on to say, he will shake everything that can be shaken, that only that which is unshakable may remain? Wake up. That means that toward the end of this age, the Lord will start to shake everything. Then we hear the words, let us therefore who are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, have grace whereby we may offer service to God, well-pleasing to him. Then it says, for our God, is a consuming fire. In other words, we are going to live in a period uh, in which everything that can be shaken will be shaken, and if our life is taken up with much of the shakable, we shall know a colossal shaking in our circumstances. But this will bring us face to face with the real need of knowing the Lord, of walking with the Lord. I don't know whether I'm getting this over, but the fact is very simple. The United States has had an incredibly comfortable kind of Christianity. I hope you don't mind me speaking plainly. And the trouble is they've exported it to the rest of the world. How to get it off the ground. How to build a church. How to do this, how to do that. Three steps to this, four steps to that. It's all a methodology. The Lord is shaking all of that. Is it not interesting that in the few years that I've been warning you that judgment is coming on the United States, very few, few people have believed what I've said. I said on one occasion that for me the United States was like the Titanic, unsinkable where the captain said even God himself cannot sh can sink this ship. But I said the Titanic was sailing into an iceberg and would sink within minutes. But most Americans, if I may, you don't mind someone like myself saying it, most Americans are far too patriotic to believe that God would sink, would sink the United States. That's unthinkable, unthinkable, because the United States is not only a superpower, 
It is the most wonderful thing that God ever created on the face of the earth. It is only there to be blessed. But the fact of the matter is that the judgment of God is upon the United States as it is upon the nations of the world. And here is the interesting thing. For those of you who will pursue this matter, if you go to Joel chapter 3, you suddenly discover you have what we say in Hebrew, a a midrash, a, a commentary, upon that prophecy of Joel from verse 28 to 32. The Lord says, And I will bring all the nations to judgment in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat means the Lord judges. And this valley is actually the Kidron Valley, which is on one side of Jerusalem. The Hinnom is valley is the other side, but this valley is the, is the uh, eastern side and then flows down to the Dead Sea. Now, there's no doubt that the Lord in the end is going to bring the nations to Armageddon. It's, it's, it's all in the word. You know that. But what does it mean about judging them? And then he explains it. Because they have sought to sell Israel. Sell her out a boy for a harlot and a girl for a glass of wine. And then come these extraordinary words. Who would have believed it if it was not the word of God? Because they have divided my land. I knew that when you had the Annapolis Conference here in the United States, to which President Bush attended, and mouthed those words about the division of the land, that the judgment of God was going to fall upon the United States. It says multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Not just meaning individuals, but also nations. Their attitude to the recreation of Israel as the fulfillment of God's prophetic word divides the nations between sheep nations and goat nations. And divides people between those who will be saved and those who will not. I think I'm right, Larry, that when we spoke some years ago now, must be four years ago, before the election of President Obama, I said here and I said elsewhere in the United States, in my, I didn't want to get involved in the politics, but I said, in my estimation, if, if, Barack Obama is elected, it will be a judgment upon the United States. President Obama says he is a Christian. He describes his conversion and his baptism. 
But can a Christian speak of same-sex marriages, of abortion, and of gay rights? But this is even more interesting. Can a good Muslim speak about abortion, gay rights, and same marriage? It's interesting. I have an awful gut feeling that President Obama is going to be elected for a second term. And if that happens, it, America will take a nosedive into paganism. <clears throat> well, I hope Sally said to me, shock him. I hope I'm doing a good job on this. Look here. You need to wake up. Sometimes we think it must take hundreds and hundreds. Let's get a thousand people together in intercession and then something will happen. No, it is not like that. You can have two people together who are prepared to pay the price and God will answer their prayer. I will say something tomorrow evening or the next evening about the Hebrides revival. And how that began with two sisters, blood sisters. One blind and the other one bent over like that with arthritis. Couldn't go to the church. They couldn't. There wasn't any point. They couldn't see. They, she, the other one couldn't walk. They turned their little coft into a sanctuary of prayer. They got a promise for God in the godlessness of their bodies. I will pour water on him that is thirsty and upon the dry ground. They pleaded that day and night for seven years. Until it happened. Well, I'll talk about that at another point. Two sisters. Seven brothers. From aged ones to young ones. Who met in an old barn. For two years. And prayed the same prayer. And had the same word from the Lord. When it happened. It revolutionized the Hebrides in the same way that when the Holy Spirit fell in the Welsh Revival, it simply changed the whole of Wales. I once asked two old ladies <laughs> who remembered the Welsh Revival. What was the thing that most surprised you about the Welsh Revival? And they thought for a few moments and then they said in their heavy Welsh accent it was the singing coming from under the ground. It was the miners. They had got saved, these unsaved miners. Uncouth vulgar, 
uneducated. They got saved. They got so saved that the pit donkeys wouldn't move because they were so used to being sworn at with obscenities, kicked and beaten, and suddenly they were treated like God's creatures and decided to take their own time about doing everything. When they sang the hymns, it reverberated right through the ground into the high street of Aberdeen. And people used to hear this singing as the only the Welsh can sing hymns. There's much else one could say in this matter. People seem to think it takes dozens and dozens of people getting together, thousands, then we'll get it doing, like a great battering ram, typical American. We'll get it going. We'll get it off the ground. We've got to get thousands of people together, and then we'll do it. It's not the way it happens. What God needs is just a few totally dedicated people who are living sacrifices to the will and purpose of God. That finds me and you out. Suddenly we discover that that self-life of ours is much more mollycoddled than we thought. We love our self-life. We stroke it day and night. We look after it so well. Anyone says anything mean about us, we go into a tantrum, not necessarily outwardly, far too Christian for that, but inwardly, bitter. How could a person say something like that about me? This self-life of ours often gets Christianized. We put Christian phraseology into its lips. We make it pray, which is the reason why our prayer meetings are so often boring. We somehow or other, we make it But the Lord Jesus said, if any man follow me, let him give up all right to himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever would save his self-life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his self-life for my sake and the Gospels, shall save it. That is the other side of the Gospel. We all know the side about sin, the forgiveness of sin, blotted out as a thick cloud. 
transgressions removed as far as the east is from the west. We all know that. We know that our Lord died for our sins, that we might be justified in the presence of God. But the other side of the gospel is our self-life, which actually, when you've dealt with sin, you've still got a self-life. Oh, it loves to be mollycoddled, spoken well of, treated beautifully, space made for it. That's why there's so little intercession. Intercession and an uncrucified self-life do not go together. Now you can have prayer meetings. We have them. I sometimes think the Satan doesn't. Um, we, we don't need Satan as far as destroying the prayer meeting goes. Leave it to the Christians. People have these shopping list prayers where every single item that's been mentioned has to be gone through like that, right through, as if they're taking them off. You get five or six shopping list prayers like that, kill any prayer meeting. Then you have the world tour ones that begin here in Washington, go off to San Francisco, which is a terrible place of sin, and then you go from San Francisco to Hong Kong, and then from Hong Kong to Beijing. And then back again to somewhere in South America. It'd kill any prayer meeting. Just absolutely kill any prayer meeting. Then you've got people who have to preach to the Lord. I sometimes think the Lord almost needs, you know, they almost know, they preach the gospel to the Lord. And it's almost as if the end, they, they want to ask him if he'd like to come forward. <laughs> I mean, it destroys any prayer meeting. You have frustrated preachers in the prayer meeting. They can't get on the platform normally, but they use the prayer meeting to give us a Bible study. Or a praise of a particular partial. I, I sometimes feel the Lord wants to say, my dear child, I wrote it. <laughs> I know what's in it. <laughs> we need sometimes to understand on statements, promises, declarations that the Lord by the Holy Spirit has made in his word. But when you have a whole paraphrase of a huge portion of scripture, it'll kill any prayer meeting. So here we are. We have an enormous problem. Well, I mustn't bore you for too long, but I found it very interesting <clears throat> that the folks who led us in worship sang about the pattern prayer. 
our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as it is in heaven, so on earth. I have no doubt at all <clears throat> that we are to always remember that the messianic kingdom of our God and of his Messiah is going to come. But I wonder is that if that is the full extent of what the Lord meant when he said, our kingdom come. What is a kingdom? Now I'm talking to Republicans now. Um, what is a kingdom? A kingdom has something to do with the king or queen. It takes its whole character from the king or queen. <laughs> so think for a moment. When you are saying, thy kingdom come, you could be saying, thy throne come. Or, <clears throat> let your throne come to bear on this situation, whatever it is. Not just maybe in the far, far future, Lord, that messianic kingdom's coming and we're looking. It's a blessed thing that purifies us. Thank God. But it's not just something far off. It's something now. Thy throne come to bear upon this situation. What is happening to the United States? Thy kingdom come. In some way, let the throne of God have bearing upon this situation. Let the throne of God, the king at the right hand of the Father, let him have influence upon what is happening in the United States. Are you going to give up your constitution? Are you going to give up all that was born in this nation through people who suffered at the loss of everything, were flung out of their countries, persecuted, hated, and came here and set up something that was biblical in its foundation, which has lasted till this generation, and which <clears throat> you are in great danger of losing. Is there not a place for the throne of God to influence this situation? Or shall we just sit in comfort, listen to nice messages, sing our hymns, and have our prayer meetings that hardly have any influence at all? Then listen, <clears throat> thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. Do we know what the will of God is? Do we know what the will of God is about this election? 
Do we know what the will of God is for this nation? Do we? Don't put words into God's mouth. Do we really know what is the will of God for this nation? Now we come to the crux of the matter. Because if we do not know by the Spirit of God what the will of God is, we cannot intercede. We can only pray. Prayer is the pouring out of our heart. Well, there's nothing wrong in that. But intercession can only begin with a knowledge of the will of God. When Moses knew what the will of God was, he said, I will destroy this nation and make a nation of you, Moses. In that moment, Moses started his intercession. Lord, you can't do this. What will the nation say after you brought them out from Egypt? You destroy them? That was intercession. When the Lord said, shall I tell Abraham what I'm going to do about about Sodom and Gomorrah? And the Lord said, I'll tell him. And the Lord said, Abraham, my judgment is going to fall on Sodom and Gomorrah. Then Abraham began his intercession. I've often wondered why he stopped at five. If he'd only gone on. But there weren't five righteous people in Sodom or Gomorrah. The Lord got out Lot, Lot, his wife, and his daughters. They had to carry them out, the angels. And even then, Lot's wife looked back. Well, you all know the story. The fact, it seems to me, is do we know the will of God? I find it incredible, and I must finish, otherwise Larry won't ask me back again. Um, You can always ask David instead. Let me put it this way. Um, I've often wondered about Daniel. Now, most Christians of Gentile persuasion don't know the background of Daniel. But Daniel, which in the church is, he is considered to be the prophet of prophets. After all, he gave that mathematical, that he was given that mathematical prophecy that went right up to the time of the Lord's birth. He has to be the most special prophet of all. But he's not in the prophets, in the Jewish arrangement. He's in the writings where you find Job and where you find Proverbs and where you find the Psalms. Because the rabbi said Daniel was a prophet but far greater than being a prophet. He was an intercessor. It is incredible to me that Daniel having his quiet time 
was reading the book of Jeremiah. And suddenly the Holy Spirit, have you ever had that experience? Something lit up. And in that moment, Daniel saw 70 years. Nobody's told me it was 70 years. I thought it was forever and ever. No, 70 years are decreed for the desolation of Jerusalem. Now, of course, he was a good mathematician, so he began to think, after all, he was the most important man next to the sultan. He'd come up and up and up and up. So he wasn't. He quickly totted up. Here is the amazing thing. He discovered that the 70 years began with King Jehoiakim. (laughs) Everybody thought it was Zedekiah. But he discovered it was Jehoiakim. Then as he totted up, he said, we have only two years, three years at the most. And it's over. Now, as I've said to you before, if he had been a good charismatic, he would have said, let's have a time of praise and worship. We'll have a ball. We don't have to pray. It's clear now. It's going to happen anyway. It's the will of God. It will happen anyway, whether we're in it or not. Instead, he dressed in sackcloth. He put ashes on his head. He fasted. And he prayed. Day and night. So powerful was his intercession that Satan said, we've got to do something about this man. And he arranged, it wasn't hard for him, to breathe into the head of these sultan's counselors who were jealous of Daniel anyway. Make it clear that anyone who prays in the next month or so, if they pray, they'll be in the lion's den. If you look, you will see that the lion's den and Daniel's prayer are the same date. That was how important Daniel's prayer of intercession. He literally prayed the Jewish people back to the promised land. That is the importance of intercession. To know the will of God. Do we know the will of God? Well, here's one thing. We know it is the will of God that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Therefore, We have absolute authority to pray that there might be an awakening in the United States. Right in the midst of all this judgment and trouble and breakup, that men and women will turn to the Lord. That we know is the will of God. What does it say in Timothy? It is not the will of God that any should should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We know. Therefore, we have ground for prayer. We have a foundation for our prayer. Here's the second thing. 
Mount Zion and Jerusalem. There shall be those that will be saved. In Mount... I think that's the Jewish remnant. That's the natural branches that haven't as yet come back into their own olive tree. Now, it may come as a great surprise to some of you young ones that the church is described as the Jewish people's own olive tree. And the dear, the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit of God, says, don't you be proud and conceited, you Gentiles that have got saved. By the grace of God, you don't bear the tree, as most Gentiles think they do. The tree bears you. Then you find God blinded. Oh, you say, what a dreadful thing to do. But the book says he blinded them. <laughs> People have always asked me, do the Jews ever read Isaiah 53? Yes, of course. We have a cycle of readings that covers the whole Old Testament. And it has to be covered on the day it is set for. They say, how can they be so blind? <laughs> well, I always say God did a good job. When he blinds someone, he blinds them. Well, what about you who Kate, were brought up in Christian homes? You knew the whole truth. Didn't there come a day when God opened your eyes and for the first time you saw that the Lord Jesus was your Savior? That was when God opened your eyes. You see, this blindness, Paul speaks about, he says, um, he said, I would not, brothers, have you ignorant of this mystery. This is the mystery of Israel. Lest you be wise in your own conceits that a hardening in part has befallen Israel. One version puts it, a partial petrification has taken place in Israel until... Listen, the full number of the Gentiles be come in. That means that this work of gathering in the Gentiles is almost toward its, its completion. So we expect the Lord to turn back to the Jewish people and save them. Now you know the will of God. It's there, written in Romans chapter 11. You can stand on it. Oh, someone says, I don't, I've never heard this before. I don't, I don't like this. Those Jews are something. So, they're so blind. I mean, they rejected Jesus, crucified him. I think they're damned, really. I mean, they're at the bottom of every problem. The economic problems and the financial problems, I think some people would love to say it's a Jewish conspiracy. But the fact of the matter is this. God has said, according as it is written, a deliverer shall come to Zion and turn away ungodliness 
from Jacob. Now it is very interesting that this is a quotation of um, Isaiah chapter 59 and the last verse, 19 I think it is, which in the Hebrew says, a redeemer shall come to Zion, to those who turn, uh, uh, to those in Jacob who turn from their sin. That's what happened with the early church. Why did the Apostle Paul change it? I've looked everywhere for, in the Septuagint to try and discover the Greek translation of the Old Testament. I've searched everywhere for some version that's different to the ones we have. Maybe there's one version that said this. The only other thing I think is that the Lord confused the apostle's mind and he said something prophetically that is going to be fulfilled. He said, we need deliverance. Israel needs deliverance. A deliverer shall come to Zion. To those not who turn and he will turn Away, ungodliness. Only the Lord knows how much ungodliness. Turn away, ungodliness from them. Something else for you to pray for. Here's the last thing, and I'm closing. It says in Revelation chapter 19, the bride has made herself ready. I look at the bride today, if it is the church, I can hardly describe her as getting ready for the coming of the Lord. I can't see it anywhere. I mean, I've said it before, I hope you don't think I'm just anti-American. But I mean, you have wall-to-wall carpeting, ministers of music, ministers of youth, Ministers of age, ministers who preach, pastors galore, choirs, magnificent organs, and I don't know what else. And the Lord Jesus is shut out. He knocks on the door, saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. But there is a remnant through the whole of the United States, a genuine remnant of those who know the Lord. We should pray that the bride will make herself ready. That there will be a kind of reviving of the true church. A quickening of those who are members of the body of the Lord Jesus. I think that's enough for one evening. But you've got there at least three things that are revealed in the word of God as the will of God. Now I don't know whether it is the will of God for Mitt Romney to become president or Barack Obama. That I don't know. 
But I'm quite sure that if there are those who are ready to sacrifice themselves in intercession to whom the Lord speaks, that whatever he says will in fact be fulfilled. You may ask me why the Lord does this. Well, I've said this before as well. I question it again and again. I think it would be much easier for the Lord not to take us in on these things. Wouldn't it be easier for him to do it? I mean, then it's going to be perfect. When he includes us, we get such a mess. We've always somehow the troublers Murmurers, always, we mess up anything. Why does the Lord include us in this thing? Why does he want us to be intercessors with him? Unless it is something to do with fellowship. The Lord longs for fellowship. It's almost as if he says, I won't do this without my own joining me. Then this whole matter of intercession becomes a school. It becomes a training ground where we're trained for eternal service. Trained to discern the will and mind of the Lord, trained to persevere in determined prayer until it is fulfilled, to overcome all the attempts of the enemy to dissuade us, even to destroy us. It becomes a training a school of education, not just for now, but for eternity. May the Lord bless you. Thank you. Thank you, Lance. I uh, as Lance was speaking, I, I believe we'd be remiss if we didn't do something. Can, can everyone uh, if, if, uh, stand up if, if, you, if you can? Uh, just, uh, just to get a motion here, something towards the Lord. I, maybe some of us need to go to our knees, I don't know. But uh, uh, Lance ended uh, this message tonight. Of course, he was telling us to wake up. Uh, and, and then he was just saying intercession can only only begin at the knowing of the will of God. And what is the will of God? That all men be saved. Uh, that, the, that God would send a deliverer to Zion. And then lastly, that the bride make herself ready. Uh, uh, just for a few moments, uh, who, who has a, uh, j- just pray. Uh, somebody pray for one of those and somebody pray for the other. Let's pray for these three things uh, just for a few moments now. Remember, not to preach, but to intercede.
Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord.